We read scripture this evening from Galatians 5. We read this passage in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 20, which is the introduction to the treatment of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's work in the church. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with their affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying 
one another. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 20, found in the back of our Psalters on page 12. We have Lord's Day 20, question and answer 53. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that he is also given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits, and that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God gave two gifts to his church with a view to their salvation, the gift of his Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ came in our flesh. He took upon himself our nature, and he was humbled unto death and hell itself, and then exalted, as we've noted in the past Lord's days, to that highest place of authority at God's right hand, where he poured out his Spirit. The Spirit unites believers to Jesus Christ, enabling them to know and to experience the joy of that salvation that Christ earned for them. One of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit is to convict sinners, of their sin and to direct them to the gospel and to give them the assurance that the gospel is true, that they lay hold upon that gospel by faith and live in the wonder of it. The Spirit takes hold of an elect child of God and works the wonder of faith in their hearts and makes them increase in holiness. The Holy Spirit, as the Spirit now works then, that sensitivity to sin and that consecration to God. If the gospel goes forth, but the Spirit's not working, all is going to be in vain. All spiritual good that's rising from the Bible and from our salvation is possible only by the power of the Spirit. And it's that work of the Holy Spirit that we celebrate and that we look at this evening. Everything that's worked in us and everything that's possible for us to do to the glory of God is credited to the Spirit. It's not of us, but it's God's work in and through us by His Spirit. And in view of the greatness of this work, we stand in awe and we are thankful for this gift that God has given to His church. The question that's raised here by the Catechism is this. How can a sinner be cleansed from sin? How can a sinner receive all the benefits of salvation in Jesus Christ? And the answer is, by God, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We confess the Holy Spirit then not simply as the third person of the Trinity, but as the Spirit of Jesus Christ, poured out upon His church as comforter, as sanctifier. The next Lord's Days go on to continue their treatment of the Holy Spirit and His work, especially in the church, in connection with forgiveness of sins, the communion of the saints, the resurrection and life everlasting, all the work of the Spirit instilling hope and joy in the life of the believer. This evening we look at the Holy Spirit, noting the marvelous gift that is ours in Him. Secondly, the wonderful result of His work. And finally, the persistent work in which He is engaged in our lives. 
We know and we believe that the Holy Spirit is divine. The Bible makes clear the Holy Spirit is not just some power, some influence that goes forth from God, but the Holy Spirit himself is God. And as we make that confession, we do so on the basis of the clear testimony of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father is God and the Son is God. And therefore we talk about three persons in one. Each of them fully God. The Holy Spirit is not less but equal with the Father and with the Son. Evidences are found throughout the Bible. We know from Genesis 1 that the Holy Spirit was present during the creation of the world. We have references to the Son being present in John 1. Colossians 1, so that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all present there in the beginning. When God said, let us make man after our own image. When later on, during the time of the Tower of Babel, God said, let us go down. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit communicating together. We know that the Holy Spirit has divine attributes. He's everywhere. David in Psalm 139 expresses comfort in the fact that we can never get to a place where the Spirit is not present. We can't escape the Spirit. Now that's terror for those who are wicked, for the reprobate, but that's comforting for God's children. God is always with us. He's always present by His Spirit, which is divine. 1 Corinthians 2 is another important passage that talks about the Holy Spirit knowing all things. Searching even the hidden things of God. So that the Spirit, as God, knows the things of God. As true God, the Holy Spirit then, is one concerning whom we must be careful with our confession and speech. What we say about the Holy Spirit, we say about God. We dare not blaspheme the name of God. We must not confess him to be something that he's not. To do so would be a travesty against God. It would be to take God's name then also in vain. And so we seek to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in light of God's word. As the third person of the Trinity, now given to Christ and poured out as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's important. The Bible doesn't just talk about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the third person of the Trinity. It talks about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Spirit became the Spirit of Christ. John 7 verse 39 teaches that God the Holy Ghost talks about the Holy Ghost not yet given. That given there is in parentheses identifying the fact that the Holy Spirit was not yet. It wasn't in the original that word. The Holy Spirit was not yet. And we understand, how, how can that be? How can it be that John 7 verse 39 is saying the Holy Spirit was not yet? When we know the Holy Spirit existed from eternity. And the explanation is that the Holy Spirit was not yet poured out as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now he's poured out as the Spirit of Christ. Because Christ has come Christ has been glorified, and now Christ poured out His Spirit. It's not a different Spirit. It's one Spirit given to Christ as the one who will lead His people into all the blessings of salvation. 
And so John 14, John 15, John 16 are all passages where Jesus is speaking of the wonders that are to come. Talking about the fact that He's going to pour out His Spirit. All the wonders that the Spirit is going to perform. How it's better for Him to leave the disciples so that He can pour out that Spirit as the Comforter and the one who will lead the church into the truth. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Jesus Christ, plays an crucially important role by making us, by a true faith, partakers of Christ and all His benefits. We have all the blessings that Jesus Christ earned for us. How will we get them? How are they made ours? The Spirit now of Jesus Christ applies all those blessings of salvation to us. That Spirit is given to men, women, children, young people. He dwells in us. Now, beloved, this is startling for us to consider. Man is created out of the dust of the earth, a clay vessel fashioned by the hand of Almighty God. We are entirely dependent upon God. We are fragile vessels falling into sin, vessels of clay that have become rebellious, sinful, inclined to every form of disobedience. The Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the one true eternal God, is now given to us. And He comes and He dwells within us. He's given to persons of clay and dust. Persons who are sinful. Creatures. Beloved, what a wonder. And what a marvel. In the Old Testament, God was pleased to dwell with Israel in the tabernacle. And you remember that Israel couldn't get close to the tabernacle. For sure they could not enter into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. That was forbid. And it was only accessible by a priest. Very rarely. Never, never could the people come into the presence of Jehovah God and His glory directly. And now today, what does God do? God makes you and me, as individual believers, those in whom He dwells by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? So intimately... God is with us, that His Spirit is dwelling within us. And that's the blessed work of Christ on the cross. When He paid for the price of sin, the distance now between Him, between God and man, is overcome. And the wealth of Pentecost is that Jehovah God now has broken down that wall of partition and has come now to dwell in our hearts intimately to live with man with us vessels of clay to dwell in the hearts of those for whom the son of god died now beloved never do we cease to marvel concerning the riches of god's grace that jehovah the most high god the eternal god of heaven and earth makes his home in the hearts of sinners such as you and me 
This is cause for ceaseless joy, unending thanksgiving and praise. That God would draw us so close to himself. And that he would give us to know that intimate union. And the result, the fruit of that union is abundantly evident. And we look at that. What is the wonderful result of the Spirit living and dwelling within us? He makes us by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits. To understand this work of the Holy Spirit, we need to make a distinction between the fact of salvation and the experience of that salvation in our hearts. The objective fact of salvation is that which God ordained from all eternity and what Christ has done for us on Calvary. We speak of the work of Jesus Christ as an accomplished fact. It's finished. He said, it is finished. He accomplished the fullness of our salvation. And we speak concerning that work then as an objective fact. It's something that already is finished. It's already taken place historically. And as such then, that can be seen in an outward way with outward signs and evidences. We have the cross. We have the grave clothes and the empty grave. We have the testimony of the angels and all of the facts that are laid out concerning the certainty and the finality of that work that Jesus accomplished for the sake of his people. Objectively, the work is done. He accomplished it all. There needs to be the application of that to us. So that the work of salvation needs to be brought into our consciences. It needs to be made our realization that Christ is mine and that he died for me. So that when we use the word subjective now, we're talking about something internal, something inside me. Objectively, he did it all. And now, subjectively, the Spirit applies that work to me, personally assuring me that Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, all the wonders of his work are mine. He did it on my behalf. These aren't just facts of history that are able to be proven and demonstrated by historical events. This is a wonder that belongs to me. And I have been given to know the joy and the hope of that union with Christ. The Holy Spirit, as a Spirit of Christ, causes that wonder to take place in our hearts. So that He takes the church out of the shadows and He introduces her to the blessings and the fullness of Jesus Christ as her own. Now, there are many who know about God. They know about Jesus Christ. Yet they don't truly know God. They lack the experience of that salvation in their hearts. Objectively, they may be familiar with it, but they don't know it within them. The Holy Spirit is not at work within them. Many claim Christ's work is for them. They say, it's mine. They claim that he forgave my sin. He's the one who's accomplished it for me. And yet they show nothing in their lives of evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work. They may come to church, they may talk about religion, but they know nothing of the faith, the joy, the hope of that salvation in their heart and in their lives. And that becomes evidence because they walk in bitterness, they walk in hatred. They don't display the fruit of the Spirit in their walk and their conduct. 
They're not desirous to live a new holy life. The Holy Spirit not only gives us the objective wonder of that salvation and gives us confidence regarding it, but gives us the subjective knowledge that that is for me. This is what Jesus did for me. His death was for sinners not merely, but for me and for my sin. The Holy Spirit makes application personally to us. And by doing so, beloved, transforms our lives. And that's the wonder that the apostle here is speaking of here in Galatians. If God dwells in the hearts of sinful vessels of clay, what happens to those people? Can it leave them untouched? Unaffected? The presence of the Holy Spirit performs a wonder. Number 17 talks about a battle. There's a battle now that's there. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. They cannot do the things that they would. Because the Spirit now is dwelling within them, working repentance, working sorrow for sin. They would desire to continue in sin unrepentantly. But the Spirit now is at work within them. The Bible is emphatic. The vessels whom the Spirit now takes hold of and makes His home, they're healed. Their brokenness is repaired. They're transformed and they're changed. Now, if we just think back to Pentecost, we think to the wonder that took place at that event. After the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter preached that powerful sermon, 3,000 souls repented and were baptized. Individuals from every different age group. Some had built themselves little kingdoms of their own with their houses and their lands and their servants. What did they do? They went out and they sold all that they had, gave to the poor, and had everything in common. Now, you say, what would it ever move them to do that? The Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts transformed those individuals. They're no longer selfish. They're no longer living for themselves. They're no longer pursuing the things of this world as ends in themselves. They're living unto God. And they're seeking to show forth God's glory in all that they do. Think of the epistles that Paul wrote. And as Paul writes in those epistles to the churches, he convicts the saints of sins. And he exposes gross sins that were present in those churches. Corinth was notorious for prostitution, for homosexuality, for sodomy, for fornication. And that was even creeping into the church. Paul comes and he brings the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit accompanied that gospel. And many believed and they experienced the work of the Spirit in their hearts, transforming them. What's the effect? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 points out, even though they had been terrible sinners in their past, now they were washed. Now they were cleansed. The Holy Spirit had so transformed them that now they were changed from those who were walking unrepentantly in sin to those who now sought God and His glory. Think of the book of Galatians. The Galatian saints, as Paul is writing here in Galatians 5, were given over to strife. 
backbiting, slander, hatred characterized them. They claimed to be living according to the law, but there was no love. There was no care one for another. Paul says, you have the Spirit. Now live according to that Spirit. If you live according to the Spirit, you're not going to be continuing in the ways of the flesh. And if you keep going in the ways of the flesh, you give evidence, you don't even know the power of the Spirit within you. The Spirit will guide you in a different way. A way of love. A way of obedience. A way of humility. And that's the point here of this chapter. That Spirit has given to you liberty. And now you live out of that liberty, that freedom that is yours in Christ. Not returning to the bondage again of the Judaizers, but living now in the joy and the wonder of the Spirit and the Spirit's work within you. That Spirit, beloved, has been given to you and to me. How is that evident in your life? How do you know and you believe that that Spirit is present? Beloved, it's impossible for someone to have the Spirit and not produce good works. Those in whom the Spirit is present are walking now according to works that are pleasing to God. Not to earn something, not to merit anything. The Belgic Confession and the handout that was given in Article 24 beautifully sets forth the fruit of the work of the Spirit. In the first paragraph, the last sentence, Therefore it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. For we do not speak of a vain faith, but of a faith which is called in Scripture a faith that worketh by love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. And then the last paragraph, making clear, these good works are not done on which we found our salvation, Striking, actually, the confession states beautifully in the end of the second paragraph, for it is by faith in Christ that we are justified even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Isn't that profound? You can't bring forth any works that are good until you've first been made good. The Spirit has to be in you. There's no possibility of bringing forth fruit that's good apart from you first having been transformed. A tree that's good brings forth now fruits that are good. And so if there's evidence of good fruit, that means transformation already has taken place. The Spirit is dwelling within you. And concretely, what is it that the apostle here speaks of? Their eyes and ears have been opened. They're sorry for their sins. They repent and turn away from them. They seek to flee from sin. They want to walk closely with God. They're able to identify now what works of the flesh are. Of themselves, they would just continue in them. But now they see those works of the flesh, verses 19 to 21. And now they look at themselves and they see, this is what the works of the flesh are. These are the things that I detest. The things that I hate. The things that I have to put off in my life. They set their heart now on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, verses 22 and following. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. 
The Holy Spirit works in unspeakable joy. Instead of being driven now by selfish ambition, instead of being driven by envy, by revenge, the Spirit-filled child of God seeks God's will, desires to walk with God. Not my will, thy will be done, becomes the mantra of the Spirit-filled child of God. The one who's contentious becomes a peacemaker. And people around see, they identify, that one is different. That one has been changed. And there's no credit that we take for ourselves. This is the work of the Spirit of Jesus Christ within me. The Spirit makes me a partaker of Christ and all the benefits of Christ. Jesus Christ died and he earned all these blessings for me. And I believe in God, the Holy Spirit. And God works by faith that enjoyment of all those blessings. Now many say that Christ obtained all of salvation for us, but now they emphasize it's man's place to have to do something in order to make it our own. We need to let him in our hearts. We need to accept Jesus. Now we want to see for a a moment that that's a denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's giving man credit where man is not to take credit. But this is the language of the Pelagians. It's a language of the Arminians. Pelagius lived in the 4th and 5th centuries. He taught natural man has a free will by which he's free to accept Christ or to reject Christ. And he emphasized then that natural man is not totally depraved. He's neutral. He's able to do good or he's able to do evil. He can do whatever he wants. God raised up the godly Augustine to stand over against the error and the lie of Pelagius. And Augustine pointed to the truth of man's depravity. Man is sinful. Natural man is bound to sin. He can't do anything that's good. He can't accept the gospel of himself. God's grace is the only possibility working within him that will give him what he needs in order to be saved. Arminius was a minister in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands during the 1600s. His doctrine was more subtle than that of Pelagius. He tried to make it a little bit more palatable, more biblical. And so he taught that the work of salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. That the work of salvation is not man's work, it's the Holy Spirit's work. And the Holy Spirit needs to give all the blessings of salvation to a man. If the Holy Spirit's not in you, you can't receive the blessings of salvation. Now that's good. We agree with all that. But then the Arminian added something. He said that spirit must work within you. But whether or not you will receive that Spirit's work, that's up to you. In other words, you have to accept it. You have to receive it. You have to let the Spirit work within you. The Spirit must give you all the blessings of salvation, but whether you're actually going to benefit from them is determined by you. And so they teach the Spirit might have a desire to save a person, to work all these blessings of salvation in that person, but that person effectively can resist the work of the Spirit. Now, we don't deny that men and women every single day are resisting the work of the Spirit. We daily do that. We're all guilty of it. We grieve the Spirit. But can a man effectively 
turn away the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. Salvation is all of God and not able to be thwarted by man. A similar error can come into the church in a different form. An error that says, well, God promises or God desires salvation for all, but then it's up to the individuals then who receive and hear the preaching to accept it. And so whether or not we actually receive the gospel again depends on our willingness to do so. That's the same error, an error that continued to raise its head within the churches. A general promise of God denying the particular saving power of God to deliver His church. We confess, beloved, the Holy Spirit makes me a partaker of Christ in all His benefits. The Holy Spirit is the one that accomplished. I didn't do this. I'm not capable of performing this wonder. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates, gives me new life. I was dead. And now the Spirit, apart from anything of my consciousness, apart from any of my will, worked in me new life. And as a result of that wonder now, I am born from above. And now the Spirit works in me that faith and works in me the grace and brings that faith to activity through the power of the Word. Christ speaks to me through the preaching and I hear that call. And because the Spirit now makes that call effectual in my heart, it works fruit. If the Spirit were not working, we wouldn't understand the gospel. Everything would be in vain. If the Spirit wasn't working, we would not know the comfort that is ours in Christ. But the Holy Spirit is at work. That's the emphasis of the Canons of Dort in the 3rd and 4th head, Articles 11 and 12. When God accomplishes His good pleasure in the elect or works in them conversion, He not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them, and powerfully illuminates their minds by His Holy Spirit, that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. But by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit pervades the inmost recesses of the man. He opens the clothes, softens the hardened heart, circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, He quickens. From being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. This is the wonder of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit performs that wonder in such a way that God then makes man now believe. Man trusts. And that's Article 12 at the conclusion of it. That the Spirit is the author of all of this, so that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly infallibly and effectually regenerated and do actually believe. Whereupon the will, thus renewed, is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Wherefore also man is rightly himself said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. The Spirit gives us the blessings of salvation. Whether we receive those blessings of the Spirit is not a matter that's determined by you or by me. It's a wonder of God's grace. As God now causes that Word to bear fruit, and God now causes the Spirit to work within us so that we hear the preaching, 
and has an impact within us. We not only hear the objective wonder of what God's done, it convicts us. I'm a sinner. I'm one for whom Christ died. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Again, beloved, if the Spirit wasn't working, you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't obey. You'd never enjoy any comfort, any hope. But the Spirit turns you, and the Spirit now directs you to God. His power is likened to the irresistible power of the wind. Remember the signs that were given at Pentecost, the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Who of us can stop the wind? This afternoon the wind was blowing. It's going to continue to blow probably strong tonight. As that wind blows, it reminds us, we can't stop the wind. We're powerless to influence the wind. That wind is going to go wherever that wind desires. So is the Holy Spirit. Who can stop God by His Spirit? The Spirit blows where it wills and powerfully works in the hearts of God's own. And so, beloved, we ask this question, Who am I? Who are you? Don't look in the mirror to try to figure out who you are. Don't ask others to try to figure out who you are. Look to the Word of God. And the Bible reveals you are a partaker of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is dwelling within you by His Spirit. There's your value. There's your worth. This is your calling as well. Live out of that Spirit. Show forth the praise of the One who's called you and who's at work within you. Christ is in you. That's who you are. And that's why then all of the various admonitions of Scripture have pertinence. This is why we have to take care of our body. Christ is in us. This is why we don't engage in fornication. We bring Christ into that sin then. We don't seek to cover this. We rejoice in it. And we show forth praise and thankfulness to God. He dwells in me. And my value and my worth is that I am not only a blood-bought child of the King, but I'm one in whom His Spirit indwells. Now that Spirit dwells within us forever. It abides with us forever. That's the persistent work of that Spirit in the hearts and lives of God's children. He's our comforter. He's He's our advocate. No one and nothing can rob us of His presence. The ascended Lord is our advocate before the Father. The Holy Spirit is within us as God's advocate to us. Christ pleads with the Father in our behalf. The Spirit causes the reply of the Father to be known in our hearts and produces the fruit of peace, contentment, joy within us. The Spirit uses the gospel as the means to plead in our hearts and to lead us into holiness. As the preaching comes forth and as we hear the gospel, the Spirit stirs us to hate our sin, turn from it, and to love God and to desire to live unto Him. The Spirit upholds us in this spiritual battle that the Apostle here is speaking of in Galatians. This battle between the flesh and the Spirit. How are we going to be maintained? How will we be kept? How will we be preserved to the end? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. I am weak, 
I fail every day. If left up to myself, all would be in vain. But God is faithful. And the Holy Spirit comforts and preserves and leads us into the truth. He dwells in us. He shows us our sin. He works in us repentance. He works in us a love for what's right. Now again, beloved, this is remarkable. Every single day, the devil is trying to lead us astray and trying to tempt us. The battle within us is real. But we have a power that's greater than the devil, a power greater than the world around us. We have God, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, dwelling within us. Working in us sorrow for sin. Working in us that sensitivity. And working in us the fruit of His Spirit. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we would perish. But God will bring to completion the work that He has begun. And God has begun a good work within us. And God will continue that work until the day of our redemption. He who will accomplish the salvation of his church will bring every last one of his own into the bliss of heavenly joy. And that spirit is within me and within you. He's comforting us. He's leading us in the truth. The truth concerning who we are. The truth concerning who God is. He's comforting us in the midst of the disappointments, the struggles, the difficulties of life. If we reject the work of the Spirit, we're comfortless. We reject the Spirit, we commit grievous sin. The Spirit turns us again in repentance, leads us into a greater knowledge of our own unworthiness. And the Spirit works that assurance that we are God's children. Now that fruit of that Spirit is displayed in those who are in Christ. Christ will see to it that that fruit will be evident in every one of his children. The fruit that's spoken of here in verses 22 and 23, it's going to be present in different measure perhaps, but every one of those various fruits will be evident in the child of God. The Spirit has united me to Christ, and he takes me as a dead branch, grafts me into Christ, so that the life I live now is out of Christ. And God's purpose with that union to Christ is that we bring forth fruit to His glory. Abundant fruit. Be holy as I am holy. Every child of God, young or old, is given that gift of faith and is given that fruit. Never may you say or I say, but I can't love. I don't know peace. I don't know joy. These fruits are in you, beloved. Now, there's room for development. We cry out to God for the grace to grow in them. But where the Spirit is, there will be fruit. And verses 22 and 23 here emphasize the Holy Spirit as the agent and the worker of that fruit. In summary, this fruit is the good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in, according to Ephesians 2 verse 10. It's one fruit with nine different aspects. If you think of an orange, you open the peel of an orange and you have all different sections within the orange. One, but then different aspects to it. But all united. And it's the love of God in Jesus Christ that's the unifying presence, the unifying substance that permeates all the other aspects of that fruit. We love God and we love the neighbor. 
And in that love toward God and the neighbor, all the others flow out of it. Out of that flows joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This is the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us. And every single day as we're doing battle against the works of the flesh, we don't view this as something to play with. See how close we can get without getting burned. We don't try to get as close to the lusts as we can without falling into sin or without getting caught. The Holy Spirit works in us a delight and a seeking after the things that are good and lovely. And we submit to the will of God. We flee those works of the flesh and daily seek refuge in the cross of Jesus Christ. Every single day then, beloved, you and I, as those who live out of the Spirit, look to God and look to Christ for the power of His Spirit to give us strength, to illuminate us, to cause us to see more fully our sin, to strengthen us in the pursuit of what's right, to live in fellowship and in communion one with another, where there is unity in the Spirit, in that bond of peace. If this depended upon our works, our actions all would be in vain. Thank God for the persistent work of His Spirit by which He works in us the grace to persevere. We don't look at ourselves. We don't rely on our own strength. And that's the point that's made at the end of the Belgic Confession, Article 24. We do good works, but we do not found our salvation upon them. We do no work, but that which is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And though we could perform such work, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus then we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty. Our poor consciences continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. We look to Christ. We look to His suffering and His death as our strength. And we do that seeking to live together in that bond of union. My grandson loves to take his, his little toy cars, as perhaps some of you children do too, and line them all up in a line and try to organize them maybe by color. God takes his children. He not only lines us up, he brings us together as one body. He joins us together by grace. And that's the wonder that he works as expressed here in verses 25 and 26. He takes us and He joins us. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And the fruit of that is we don't seek vain glory. We don't provoke one another. We don't envy one another. We seek the good of one another. We seek to glorify God in what we do and in what we say. That's the marvelous work as God joins us together as multiple individuals who are united in one body to live out of that body and to show forth praise. Beloved, every single day you need comfort and I need comfort. And here's the question that burns in our hearts and souls every day. How can I be assured that I'm going to get to heaven when I see how sinful I am? I know my sin. I know my weakness. I know that spots adhere to the best of my works. I know that I'm never able to do anything perfect without sin. And I battle continually with that sin. And the temptations constantly are threatening to overcome me. Beloved, we need the comfort of the truth of God. 
the comfort of the work of the Spirit. As we face sin, and as we face trials, and as we do battle against that sinful nature, again, don't look in the mirror. You're weak. You're going to fail. Look to Christ. Look to the strength that is yours in Christ. Rely on His suffering, on the perfection of His work on your behalf. And remember who you are. A blood-bought child of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And that life of Christ will never die. So that though you die, you yet live. The regenerated heart proceeding to the fullness of eternal joy in heavenly bliss. That comfort you need and I need in all of our struggles. And the Spirit assures us of that everlasting comfort. Whatever befalls, God's advocate is with us and in us. And our fragile clay vessels are being polished to shine as the sun, strengthened to fight against sin, to do battle against the devil, knowing that no temptation is too great for us to bear as we look to Christ, because the Spirit is in us, and the true eternal God will preserve and keep us. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, thou dost know that we are weak. But thou art strong. And we stand in awe of thy goodness and mercy toward us. And we look to thee. Strengthen us by thy spirit. Cause that we might know the victory that's in Christ. That we might know the forgiveness that is ours in him. And that we might live ever out of the joy and hope that is found in him. Cause the fruit of the Spirit to be evident within us. For Jesus' sake, amen.